which I would like to draw your attention to this morning is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 25. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what's played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what's said? For you will be speaking in the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person's not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law it's written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Heavenly Father, that is the end for which we are here, that we would all worship God and recognize your power and your work in each of us, particularly 
that we would have a love for one another that is likened to what we've studied in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And God, that that love would drive us to pursue the building up of the church with a passion that corresponds with the calling to which you've called us. And so for that to take place, we need your assistance, both to understand many of the confusing things in this chapter, but not just to understand, to be transformed, to be changed, and be compelled by the argument that your word makes here. So I pray that you would assist me to make that argument clear, but Spirit, that you would go even deeper and compel us in the depths of our heart and soul to be the people that you've called your church to be. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So the last few weeks, we've been examining Paul's instruction to the Corinthians regarding spiritual gifts. And this discussion, which began in chapter 14, uh, continued in chapter 13. And Paul went from that general discussion of spiritual gifts and uh, described that love in particular should be the priority in their ministry. Because if the Corinthians fail to love, no matter what spiritual gifts they're manifesting, they're failing. All of their ministry would be failures if they did not love. And so he tells them what this love looks like. And then he says that such love will endure unlike so many of the other gifts. And then now here in chapter 14, Paul moves from his emphasis on pursuing love as the aim of ministry to focusing on the gifts of prophecy and tongues in particular. Now, it's important to recognize Paul is not explaining how tongues and prophecy work in this passage, although we can infer many things about the way they function from the text. What he's particularly arguing is that the aim of the gifts is to edify the church, not to demonstrate how impressive an individual with that gift was. So that's his main argument. Seek to edify one another, not to impress one another. And in particular, he's arguing that prophecy is superior to tongues because prophecy is particularly edifying. It has a particular power to edify, whereas tongues is dependent upon interpretation in order for it to have any sort of edifying impact. It needs to be understood by the listener. So in order to develop his argument, Paul makes his point in four paragraphs. The first is a simple summary of his argument that prophecy is superior to tongues in its ability to edify. And that's in verses 1 through 5. And unfortunately, that's probably all as far as I'll get today because I want to spend time looking at how those gifts function, particularly in the book of Acts. So I will probably not answer all the questions you have regarding prophecy and tongues, but hopefully, if you come back next week, the majority of those will be answered. And if you have more, to- uh, more questions, even after the service, that I can even address in the, in the, weeks to, uh, the week to come, uh, let me know and I will um, seek to do so. So his first 
paragraph is really just a summary of his argument. And then in verses 6 through 12, the second paragraph, he points out that tongue is ineffective in edifying unless it's accompanied by other gifts. And he illustrates this using uh, musical instruments. The third paragraph argues that tongues is ineffective in edifying again unless it's interpreted. And he illustrates that point by differentiating the spirit and the mind of a person. And the fourth paragraph points out that tongues was particularly designed for unbelievers. And he illustrates this, or rather supports this, by pointing to the law of the Old Testament. So he makes his argument, again, that prophecy is spirit tongues in its ability to edify. Therefore, they should desire prophecy even more than tongues. Not because tongues isn't helpful, it's just not as helpful as prophecy for the end of edification. So before we dive into the text before us, I believe it is and will be important for us to get greater clarity on what these gifts were. So let's, let's look particularly first at the gift of prophecy. And now prophecy, if you'll remember, is a proclamation of direct revelation given by God. And it includes both foretelling, so proclaiming what might happen in the future or what will happen in the future, and forthtelling, proclaiming God's will to a particular group of people. Now, prophecy can be faked, thus false prophets. And we had false prophets in the Old Testament as well as mentioned in the New Testament. And so whatever a prophet proclaims needs to be examined. Also, it's important to note that prophecy is not the same as Scripture. Although some prophecy did become Scripture, there's a differentiation. And we know this because there were many prophets in the Bible whose words were never considered Scripture. They were not even written down as Scripture. And that's because the revelation that they gave did not have benefits for all people in successive generations. That's what, that's what makes Scripture so significant, is what the Scripture teaches has actually revelation that impacts all people through all time in what it reveals, in what it tells us about God and His will for us. So not all prophecy is scripture, but some prophecy was. Now, tongues refers to the supernatural ability to speak in a foreign language. And as we'll see in verses 20 and 25 of this chapter, it was particularly designed for unbelievers. It was a gift to be a sign for unbelievers. In particular, it was a sign to the Jews that God was turning towards the Gentiles and giving his Holy Spirit to them. And for clarity and understanding these gifts, we can turn to the book of Acts in order to see how they actually functioned in the early church. So let's do so. Let's look first at prophecy. The word prophecy comes up a number of times, in particular in chapter 2 and 3, which is where we have the Holy Spirit being given at Pentecost. And what's particularly noteworthy in these chapters, and I encourage you to, to flip there and, and allow your eyes to drift over those chapters, what's particularly noteworthy is that the word used of New Testament prophecy is the same word that's used to refer to Old Testament prophecy. And that's significant because no caveat's given that there's any sort of difference. So what a person understood an Old Testament prophet to be, they would expect the same thing of a New Testament prophet. 
It's the same sort of prophecy. And therefore, we should assume that the gift functioned the same way that it functioned in the Old Testament with um, Isaiah and Ezekiel. Again, not scripture, but still prophecy. Then in Acts chapter 11, 27 through 30, we see that this gift is manifested by one of the prophets in Antioch named Agabus. Agabus proclaims to the church in Antioch that there is going to be a famine that affects the church in Jerusalem. And so through this prophecy, he directs the believers in the church of Antioch to begin taking up a collection to support the church in Judea. So if you're looking at the passage, this is what it says. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit, therefore they have foretelling, that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And then in Acts 13, verses 1 through 3, we see the Holy Spirit speaking through, the, through other prophets at the church of Antioch when he calls them to set apart Barnabas and Saul to go on a mission trip. And apparently these revelations, these prophecies were given during a worship service there. So in Acts 13, verse 1, it reads, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. And he lists them. Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So you have the Holy Spirit giving a direct command to the church in Antioch to set apart Barnabas and Saul to serve other churches. And then in Acts 15, verse 30, we have the Jerusalem Council. So after the Jerusalem Council convenes to talk about uh, the, the nature of God's grace given to the Gentiles, they send, along with Paul and Barnabas, two prophets, Judas and Silas, who were prophets of the church of Antioch, and they encourage the Gentile Christians there with many words. So we read in verse 30, So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. That's the effect of their prophecy. It encouraged and strengthened the brothers. So this is how the gift of prophecy manifested itself in the early church. Very similar to the way prophets worked in the Old Testament, which shouldn't surprise us. Now let's look at the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues was first manifested in Acts chapter 2. So please turn there. I'm going to read uh, 13 verses from that, which I think really gives the greatest clarity on how this gift functioned. Chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house while they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, 
devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. So it lists all these various people groups and where they're from and point being the language that they spoke. And they say, we hear them telling in our own tongues, our own languages, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Now Peter, at this point, goes on to explain to them, because they ask, well, what does this mean? He explains that what they're witnessing is a prophetic fulfillment of what Joel prophesied in Joel chapter 2. Namely, that God would pour out His Spirit on all peoples. The Spirit wouldn't just be given to the Jews, but God would pour out His Spirit upon all peoples now. And Acts 2 focuses on this gift being given to those scattered Jews who had gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. Next time we see this gift being manifested is in Acts chapter 10, verses 40 through 46. And it focuses upon now this gift being given to the Gentiles. Previously it was given to Jews who had been scattered throughout the world, who had gathered in Galilee. Now this gift is given to the Gentiles in Caesarea. It says in verse 4 of chapter 10, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So not just Jews who lived and spoke different languages, but the Gentiles too. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. So it affirms that promise that God gave to Joel that all peoples would be, receive the Holy Spirit as they believe in Christ. And then in Acts chapter 19, this gift is given to the disciples of John the Baptist. People who had heard the truth and yet had not received the Holy Spirit. And it says in Acts 19.6 that when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And so providentially, this supernatural ability to speak in a foreign language was particularly manifested to affirm the presence of the Holy Spirit in these three different people groups as the gospel expands to Jews, to Gentiles, and including those who had followed John the Baptist in his ministry. And so we see this gift was particularly given as a sign that the Holy Spirit was given to all people who would believe in Jesus Christ. It affirmed that God was extending his grace to the world, not just to the Jews. And apparently, both of these gifts, these supernatural, powerful manifestations of the Spirit, were given to the believers in Corinth. But tongues in particular seems to have been especially desired by the Corinthians. And so Paul uses these two gifts tongues and prophecy in order to illustrate the point that the same point that he's been making the last few chapters that the aim of Christians 
is not to exalt themselves, to seek themselves, to impress others, but that the aim of Christians should be to exalt Christ and to edify the church. And he makes this point in chapter 14 by noting that prophecy is far more effective than tongues. And therefore, it should be desired more. So edification, not impressiveness, is what the Corinthians should have been aiming at in their ministry. Edification, not impressing others. So again, Paul's not giving a description of the two gifts in this passage. That's not his point. His point is to make this argument. And recognizing this will help us to avoid many of the errors that people make as they try to understand these two gifts and they really twist conclusions out of this chapter, making it say things that it was never intended to say. And it'll help us guard us from being confused by what Paul is saying. If we remember, that's his point that he's making. And that'll become clear as we go through this. So even though tongues might be more spiritually impressive, I mean, think about that. If all of a sudden one of your friends... Say Dan Isaacson is all of a sudden able to speak in Chinese. He's never taken a lick of Chinese in his life, as far as I know. I mean, that's impressive. So even though it might be spiritually impressive, it's relatively weak when considering the ultimate aim of the gifts. It plays a small part, but it's relatively weak. So by way of illustration, think of something like a, a really talented worship team who have just the an ability to, um, you know, wow an audience in their, their talent and their voices. But they're very impressive. However, if their worship is not accompanied with, by, with rich lyrics and biblical preaching, its impact is actually relatively small. Its ability to edify is relatively small. Little growth will take place over time. And that's not because the music is bad. It's, it's good. It's helpful. It just needs more. The music needs truth to accompany it in order for it to have a long-lasting impact. And so impressiveness is not the goal. It's not bad, but it's not the goal. The goal is edification. That's why God gave the gifts to the church. Let's look in particular why prophecy is better than tongues. Beginning in uh, verse 1, Paul says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. prophesy. The word pursue, it's the word dioko, can actually be translated persecute. It means to strive after, to pursue something with with passion, with intense effort. And it's, it's noteworthy, I point this out for your encouragement, it's noteworthy that he says pursue love. Because if you're like me and you've been studying and, and, and meditating upon what 1 Corinthians 13 actually means, it can be discouraging. So when Paul says pursue love, he's not assuming that his audience has arrived. but that it's something it needs to be worked towards. So he says, pursue love. What they pursue also is spiritual gifts. 
love in the spiritual gifts. The word for spiritual gifts is the word pneumatikos. Uh, it means, literally it means spiritual things. It's a different word than it's translated um, spiritual gifts in other passages. It just means things that are related to the Spirit. But he is referring to spiritual gifts here, clearly. Tongues and prophecy. And what they should especially desire is prophecy because of its powerful ability to edify. But again, this is not the case with tongues. Well, why not? Well, he says in verse 2, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. What does Paul mean there? Well, Paul helps us. He tells us in the very next phrase. For no one understands him. He utters mysteries in the Spirit. See, if a person is speaking in an unknown language, nobody understands what he's saying. It's an unknown language. Therefore, if nobody understands what he's saying, no edification is taking place. It might be impressive, but it's not helpful. So if no one understands, only God is left. That's what he means they speak to men, but to God. Only God understands. In contrast, prophecy speaks to people for building encouragement and consolation. Verse 3. So he says, it works towards upbuilding. This is the word akodomeo, from the, from the Greek word oikos, which means house or building. So literally, the build, it works to build something up. To work towards maturity, to cause it to grow, to be steadfast and strong. Prophecy has the ability to encourage. A well-known word, parakleo, means to come alongside. It's how Jesus describes the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, who comes alongside as a comforter, is often translated. It, it, that's what it means, to come alongside a person, to support another person, like, like a friend would or a coach would. Prophecy has this ability. It also has the ability, ability to console. This, this describes strengthening the heart of another person, particularly a person who's lost heart, who's discouraged, and is lacking trust and drive to, to encourage, to strengthen their heart. So besides prophecy, what has the power to edify also in these three ways. Psalm ninety four nineteen, When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. What's the psalmist talking about? Talking about the word of God. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. The scriptures provide encouragement also. And we read this earlier, Ephesians 4, that God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to teach so that through endurance, so that through the, through the saints would be equipped for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. So they teach the word to build up the body of Christ. The word of God is what accomplishes these three things. And I would say it has the power to do this even greater than prophecy does. What prophecy did for the early church is now accomplished through the word of God. And that makes prophecy less necessary. Remember what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. All scripture is breathed out by God 
and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The man of God has everything he needs to work towards edifying the body of Christ. Unlike prophecy, that maybe has an ability to edify in a particular, a particular people in a particular situation, also this, the scripture has the ability to always have an impact and to work towards edification. So if the reason the Christians should desire prophecy is because of its ability to build up, to encourage, and to console other believers, these are the same reasons that we should long for the ability to know and explain God's word. If Paul says, Corinthians, desire prophecy because it has this sort of impact, all the more we who have the completed word of God should long to know the word of God and be able to understand and explain the word of God to others. So if you desire to build up the body of Christ, if the aim of your life is to love the church, and you will want to grow in your understanding of God's word. You will not want to be like the servant who buries his talents. And so you will want to master God's word. You want to take advantage of every opportunity you have to know everything that the word of God teaches. Knowing the word of God, if edification is the goal of your life, like Paul wants the Corinthians to have, Knowing and, and being able to explain the word of God will be the paramount pursuit of your life. Everything else should revolve around being able to do that. Why? Because you so much long to build up the church. And the word of God always has the ability to edify. Just like prophecy. Even greater than prophecy. Another way to say it. If the aim of your life is to glorify God, which I believe it is, then the primary means to do so is through the building up of the church, Christ's body. Remember what, what, what um, Paul, sorry, what Christ said to his disciples in John 15. By this my Father is glorified, that you would bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So if if you recognize that the way God is glorified is through the building up of the church, the growth of the truth, the strength of the church, the beautification of Christ's bride, you'll want to identify the best means to accomplish that end of edification. And according to what Paul is saying here, the unfailing means is the Word of God. Another way to, to look at this. What prophecy was then, God's word is even more so today. Remember what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1 when he reminded sorry, when he reminded them that he James and John had heard God speak directly to them when he was down on the mount of transfiguration. Remember what he said about scripture in contrast to what they heard when they heard God speak, he said, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. 
and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Well, what's this prophetic word? Look at verse 20. The prophecy of Scripture. To which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. I mean, receive that. Think of the power to edify that the Word of God has. It's greater than hearing the voice of God speak from heaven. That's what Peter's saying. And so if the aim of your life is to strengthen and edify the church, knowing God's Word and teaching God's Word will be a paramount pursuit in your life. Well, one person might ask, and wisely ask, well, then why doesn't Paul say, read and study the Word then? Why does, why does he say, prophecy is what's great? Why does he specify prophecy? I think that's a good question. I think how I'd respond is, first of all, when Paul writes this, the, the New Testament hadn't been fully compiled. It was not in book form like we had today. It was various letters that only few copies really existed at the time. And it would take years for what we possess to be copied down and, and to spread throughout all the churches. In fact, I've been doing uh, some study in the Reformation, hopefully to, to teach a class on the history of the Reformation, a Sunday school class on it. And one of the things that I, I read about is um, John Wycliffe. Uh, translated the Bible into English. This is in the uh, uh, 14th century. And for a per, what it cost to have a Bible, this is the 14th century, this was even years after you know, the first century. I mean, it's over a millennia. In the 14th century, it cost a person half a year's wages to own a Bible. And so it wasn't until the printing press came that you know, the Bible could be mass-produced. And that's what happened with Tyndale. But think about the value of the Word of God. But it hadn't been compiled yet. Until the Scriptures were completed, prophecy would be a critical source of support and edification. Secondly, his point is to direct the Corinthians away from self-exaltation. Right? That's the point he's trying to make. He wants to direct them away from self-exaltation and their gifts to pursue edification with the gifts. So he's, he's talking about the gifts. And so he wants to illustrate his point by using two of the most impressive gifts, prophecy and tongues. And so the Corinthians should particularly desire prophecy in order to accomplish this aim of edifying the church. And so he says in verse 4, The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So again, tongues can only edify the person speaking, unless, of course, it gets interpreted. If it gets interpreted, then it might have the ability to edify. But but it's dependent upon that interpretation. But prophecy, because it can be immediately understood by the audience immediately has the power to build up the church. And Paul says something curious in verse 5. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. 
like, I want you all to speak in tongues. Now, he doesn't give an explanation for why he says that. But I think in the least it affirms that tongues is not bad. It's still a very good gift to have. That's why he wants them to speak in it. It's just not as good as prophecy because it can't edify like prophecy can. Because it needs interpreting. So he says, The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets, again, so that the church may be built up. Again, he emphasized it in verse 4 and verse 5. So the church may be built up. That's Paul's main point. The gifts are for the building up of the church. And so that really is the main application for us. Our purpose, the aim of our life, should be to build up the body of Christ. Again, not just devotion to the institution, but devotion to the people in the institution who make up the institution. And that goes beyond these walls. That should be the aim of our life if we're believers. And we, like the Corinthians, can easily be tempted to use our gifts, our spiritual gifts, or even our talents as a means of gaining affirmation. It's very easy for us to be tempted to want to prove our value, to prove our worth, to impress others with our gifts and abilities in order to prove our significance instead of aiming at edification. We desire people to love us and to admire us and to respect us. And so we serve with that end. Or at least... That's the lion's share of our motivation. And if that's the case, if that's the lion's share of our motivation, what we're doing is not loving. And if that's the case, we're failing completely. Remember 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. We're failing. We're wasting our lives. If we're trying to prove our value versus trying to build up one another, we're wasting what God's given us. We're burying our talents. To use Christ's parable. And so it's critical that instead of thinking about ourselves, proving our value, we need to be focused on how can we best build up one another in the body of Christ? How can we best aim at maturity within the body of Christ? How can we serve one another? One of the things that studying history teaches us is that every people group, every city, every time period, the people in that time period have blind spots. They're just blind to their own weaknesses. And so reading that, I mean, as a historian, you can kind of see, oh, wow, man, they should have known that. But that prompts me to ask the question, well, what's our blind spots? As 21st century evangelicals, what are we blind to in regard to what the church is supposed to look like? What are our theological blind spots? And I think this is one of, um, one of the greatest. I can think of two major blind spots. One, I think we really don't understand how powerful and effective prayer is. Or else we'd pray more. But sets that aside, sticking with where we're at in this passage. I think one of our major blind spots as American evangelicals is this self-centeredness. 
the typical mindset of an American evangelical when they attend church is, I'm going to go to church because I need to be spiritually refreshed. I need to learn. I need to be encouraged. I need to be built up. I, 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 I. Rather than, good night, I can't wait to see my brothers and sisters. I want to find out how they're doing. You know, so-and-so I know has had a hard week, and I've been praying for them. Or when they're listening to this sermon, not in a self-righteous way, but, man, God, open up our hearts. Help us to see this, that we might be the people that you're calling us to be within the church. And so not just thinking about, hmm, do I agree with that? Again, not a bad question. But they're, they're, they're longing, God, help us to be, help, help all of us to be the people you've called us to be. There's this self-centered catharsis, I like to call it. Church is about just going in, getting refreshed, and leaving and feeling better about ourselves. That's, that's the typical mindset. Hopefully it's not your mindset, but I think that's common. Rather than, I want to see my brothers and sisters become the most godly people they can be. And yes, you should go to church to be reminded of the gospel, to be encouraged, to learn. But recognize, you go to, to be reminded of the gospel, to be encouraged and to learn, so that you can help everybody else be encouraged and grow and learn. It's not, it doesn't stop with you. You're not the point. It's not the part, but the whole that matters. Yes, the part matters, but in a really small sense. And it's so important for us to recognize that. Because if we stop there with ourself and our own encouragement, there's no love. It's pure self-centeredness. Remember again Jesus' words to Peter in John 21. Famous passage. Peter is approached by Christ, and this is, again, the, the first conversation they have after, after Peter, the last conversation they had, Peter said, Lord, I will never deny you. I, even if everybody else here denies you, I would never deny you. Well, what does Peter do? Hours later, three times, stabs Christ in the back, and Christ looks at him, and the cock crows, and Peter is broken. He goes out and weeps bitterly. This is the first conversation they had. Peter had blown it miserably. If, if anybody ever needed encouragement, ever needed restoration, it was Peter at this moment. Like many of us, when we come to church on Sundays, we, we're broken and we need help, we need encouragement. And Jesus ministers to this need of Peter's. But recognize he doesn't stop there. Remember what he tells Peter to do? Feed my sheep. Peter, feed my lambs. He doesn't just say, Peter, just, just remember the gospel. You're forgiven, brother. Go home. Lead a comfortable, successful life. Go be a great fisherman. Relax. Jesus didn't pour out three years of his life into Peter just so that Peter could be a forgiven fisherman. Yes, he did that to forgive Peter. He died on the cross to forgive Peter. But he called Peter. Why? He said, Peter, come follow me. Why? So that you will be a fisher of men. Brothers and sisters, that is why God has called you too. If you're a Christian, you are called to be a fisher of men. 
And part of that is building up the body of Christ. That's why you were saved. Not just so you could be forgiven, but so that you could help, so that you could be used by God to accomplish his purpose in the church. Again, remember John 15. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Do you see how he goes back to love? I'm giving you the Holy Spirit, disciples, so that you will love one another and that you would bear fruit. And that fruit would remain. And so there's a really easy test to see if we have this blind spot. To see if we get it. What God has called us to. If you understand this, you understand what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 14, you will not want to miss any opportunity to grow in your understanding of the word. Not so, not so that you gain knowledge because knowledge puffs up. But you wouldn't want to miss any opportunity because you want to edify the body of Christ. Because that's your aim. And that's what accomplishes it. Secondly, you wouldn't want to miss out on any opportunity to be with believers. Because that's why you live. It's to help them. So the reason you go to church, the reason you go to community group, it's not just to be reminded of truth. Yes, it is. That's part of it. But so that you can help one another. It's about them. You go for them. You go for one another. Because that's what Christ has called us to. Now recognize that this is a common struggle for Christians. It's a struggle for me to love like this and to to not be drawn into self-exaltation, but to remember it's about edification of others. So it's a a common struggle, the self-centered versus edification mindset. I mean, after all, this, that's the point of think, this passage. Paul is addressing the Corinthians. That's what he's trying to get the Corinthians. The Corinthians are struggling with this. But recognize this too. The Corinthians are really not the model church. They're not the people you want to model your lives after. Contrast this with like the Thessalonians. Paul says to them in Chapter 4, verse 9. Now, considering brother, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So when Paul thinks of the Thessalonians, he's like, and he, he mentions this a number of times in that letter, you guys get it. You love so much so that your love is being manifested throughout all of Macedonia. And think about it. Who are the Macedonians? You guys remember 2 Corinthians chapter 7? Paul talks about the Macedonians. I love the Macedonians. It was the Macedonians who, even though they were in poverty, gave lavishly to meet the needs of the people in Jerusalem. They were so compelled by love. They're like, I may be dirt poor, but I got something to give. Just like that widow who gave her might. She gave more than all the other people who gave. That's the Macedonians. Well, how do they learn to love like that? 
from God. You are taught by God to love one another. And they learned it from the Thessalonians. It's sweet. Well, in conclusion, I think it's important also to remember what Christ says in Matthew seven twenty one through 23. That not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name. Do mighty works in your name. And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I think the, I mean, really the scariest thing that I can think of is that there might be somebody here that thinks they're a Christian, but their heart has never actually been changed. They believe they're a Christian just because they mentally affirm some critical doctrines like the gospel or because they serve the church. Now, it is necessary in order to be saved to affirm critical doctrines. You have to affirm the gospel. You have to believe the gospel. But it's not enough to say, Lord, Lord, to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's not enough to say, Lord, Lord, and be saved. That's not salvation. Yes, it's necessary to serve, but prophecy, casting out demons, and doing mighty works isn't salvation. Again, to be saved means that your heart has been changed. To use the words of Jesus to Nicodemus, to be born again, to be to have the heart of flesh removed and given, or the heart of stone removed and give a heart of flesh that lives no longer for yourself and self-exaltation, but for Jesus Christ who died and rose again on your behalf. He's the aim. He's what you live for. He's the focus of your life. And the evidence that you live for Christ is that you love the body of Christ. You love the church. 1 John 3, 10-14 By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness of God, who is the one who does not love his brother? And we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Love for one another, love for the body of Christ is the evidence that you're a believer. And again, he's not just talking about affection. He doesn't just mean that you like other people or that you're willing to serve other people. What it means, what this love is, remember, this love is 1 Corinthians 13, being devoted to another person's spiritual growth. That's your aim. Remember, that's the point of the love passage. It's, it's, 1 Corinthians 13 is about edification, Instead of pursuing these gifts, pursue love, because if you pursue love, you will be edifying. So love and edification are completely linked. If you don't want me to grow spiritually, if that's not the aim of your, in your relationship with me, you don't love me. You might like me, you might respect me, you might enjoy being around me, but brothers and sisters, that's not biblical love. Biblical love means I want Joseph White or whoever else 
you're thinking of to be the most godly person, the most mature believer they can possibly be. And so when I'm with him, I'm praying and I'm wanting to encourage him towards that end. That's the mark of a believer. That's the mark of love. And so for the believer, it should not be difficult to fully resonate with the words of Timothy Dwight in his hymn, I love thy kingdom, Lord. I love these words. I think it's the heart of the church. I love thy kingdom, Lord, the place of thine abode, the church our blessed Redeemer saved with his own precious blood. I love thy church, O God, her walls before thee stand. Dear is the apple of thine eye, engraven in thy hand. For her my tears shall fall. For her my prayers ascend. To her my cares and toils be given, till toils and cares shall end. Beyond my highest joy, I prize her heavenly ways, her sweet communion, her solemn vows, her hymns of love and praise. Again, the growth and development of the church should be the driving passion of your life if you're a believer. Again, not the institution, but the people who make up the institution. And if not, if it's not, you have to ask the question, have I really been born again? Because the worst thing that could happen is to think you're saved and on the last day to have Jesus say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. To pursue edification is not a minor issue. It's the ultimate aim of all that we do. Let's pray. Father, we, we want to be all that you've called us to be and we confess we really are um, horribly self-centered. And God, you, you know me. You know how much pride and arrogance have affected so much of my ministry, so much of my relationships and I pray that with me as well as with my brothers and sisters here you would shatter self-centeredness and and produce the spiritual fruit of love that is so evident that we would passionately and very clearly and very sincerely demonstrate we live for your glory and for the growth of your church. So to do that, we ask for your assistance to bring that great work about. In Christ's name.